Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're now in Vayera 21.1, which is the story of Sarah's conception, Yitzhak's birth, and Hagar and Ishmael, and what happens between Sarah and Hagar. So I've asked you to look through these through the lens of ancient Mesopotamia as we're looking at these stories. And I know sometimes y'all are like, what is she talking about? This is Israelite, uh, right? Okay, but truly, truly, right? This is a book by my um, <laughs> teacher of blessed memory, Dr. Tikva Frymer-Kensky, called In the Wake of the Goddesses. This is all about how Mesopotamian religion would have understood the feminine divine. So the images that we found of Asherah, right, of Astarte, right, so this is, this was the world that these stories were born out of. What we are holding in our hands when we hold the Torah and the Torah's version is a reconstruction of these stories. So when I say, yes, this is a patriarchal culture, yes, these are Yahwists, yes, absolutely. They don't create these characters out of nowhere. They are creating characters that have been around and venerated for a very, very, very long time. So this book... Sarah the Priestess, written by uh, Savina Tubal, I've told you about before. Um, so this book takes Sarai, and that name means princess, takes Sarai and understands her as having come from Mesopotamia and the stories of princess slash priestess. That they, these stories about Sarai, and when I, when I said last time a pedimento, right, and we said, what does that mean? A pedimento is you have an image, you do another image on top of it, but it doesn't erase the image underneath. So we have a pedimento, right, we have a bunch of stories. This is the latest, but it doesn't, it doesn't totally eradicate the story, the remnants of the stories from Mesopotamia. Does that make sense? So we still have snippets. We still have a little bit of these stories showing through our text. And what I'm going to ask us to do, because you can get the other version anywhere, right? The patriarchal, it's Sarah and Hagar. They hate each other. It's about only about jealousy. You can get that anywhere. What can you only get here? FKI? <laughs> what you can only get here is reading the story through the lens of Mesopotamian mythology, Mesopotamian religion, Mesopotamian understanding of women's roles both in the clan, in the family, and in the religious system. I am not suggesting the Yaoist is bringing these stories for that purpose. Obviously, the Yaoist is working against Mesopotamian culture, but can't completely erase the origins of these stories. And I just want us to hold some possibilities in mind as we look at what we're about to read about inheritance. If anything, that pedimento, pedimenta, enriches the story. And what you told us last week, our discussion last week, made that story so much more alive 
than what you get everywhere else. I'm so glad, because that that really is my goal here. It's not to try to sell you that this is a Mesopotamian story. We know it is, right? It's It's to help us understand and appreciate the story at a deeper, richer level than if we just go, Sarah hates Hagar and throws her out. Like that... It's right, and it it doesn't put Sarai in a great light. Not that we have to. Our, our characters are, are real, and they and they are flawed. I'm not saying we have to save her from herself, um, but I feel like we just kind of read over a lot of what was actually going on here. All right, I gave you the Uruk. So the so the. So these are oral texts that are, you know, long before they are written down. They're written down around the 8th century BCE. Is when they're written and started to be edited. This would have been before that. They would have been told before that for sure. This is before that, right? This is 3000 BCE to 2500 BCE, right? So it's... So we've got oral tradition finally being written down. Yes. The Yahwist tradition, right? The Israelite tradition. We have written texts from... That from Sumer and from Akkadia. We have Akkadian and Sumerian cuneiform texts that tell us these stories. That's how we know this, right? We're, nobody's making it up. The people who know a Sumerian and Akkadian, like my teacher who wrote this book, translates those texts and those myths that we have preserved, okay? So I gave you the Urukvaz. Look at the long, if you go to the long version, not the, the, not the zoom in, picture, but the, a picture of the long vase, and if you have it, you can share with your neighbor who doesn't. Do you see the long the long version? Okay, at the very bottom, at the very bottom of the vase, there are some wavy lines. The wavy lines are, any guesses? Water. You have to have water for the basis of life, particularly in the Middle East, right? So the wavy lines at the very bottom of the vase are water. What's above the water? Plants. Plants, right? So early agriculture, early crops like barley, okay? So above the water is is the flora of the region that would have sustained life. Above that is what? The fauna. And notice that the fauna goes male, female, male, female, male, female. So big, little, big, little, big, little around the vase, right? So th- that that symbolizes the cattle, the milk, the meat, the wool, textiles, right? All those things that was the wealth of the community um, and and communal resources. And male, female, male, female, male, female suggests what? Coupling. Coupling. Fertility. Right? So, right, male, female on Noah's Ark so that there is perpetuation of life. Right? So this is definitely about fertility. All right, what's above the animals? Okay, so, but look at, look, look at the, the humans. Tell me about the humans. No. Look at the, the first level of, of humans is what? It's Okay, it's all male. Tell me, tell me about their physique. They're big. They're big. They're 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 chunky. Like they're kind of. It's not how you're used to seeing humans uh, depicted in that time. They're they're much more fleshy. Like they're they're buff. They have enough to eat. 
They have enough to eat. They're carrying food. All right, tell me about their clothing. Not much. <laughs> Not much. It's hot there. So they are they are naked. Tell me about their gender. All male. They're all men. They're focus with me. They're all men. They're all naked. They're healthy and they are carrying baskets of produce. Now look at the top of the vase. And what's at the top? Who are they carrying this to? Okay. They are they are carrying it to a woman. Woman because she's clothed. Who is clothed? Nakedness was a sign of subordination. These are not Greek vases. Greeks had nudity being a depiction of perfect perfection and strength and beauty not so in the ancient world of Mesopotamia if you're naked you are subservient the woman is clothed it is inanna it is the goddess or the priestess representing inanna accepting the gifts on behalf of the community possibly there were to be a um, sexual a sexual union between inanna and one of these one of the priests uh doing the whole enacting the holy marriage between inanna and her male counterpart in heaven doing that here on earth right that's it's it's mirroring right you want to do here what you want to have happen above right. and vice versa right. so possibly this leads to you know a sacred rite of um of sexual union maybe not but all of these subservient men are carrying offerings to the representative of inanna the priestess so lest you think i'm making this stuff up <laughs> this is the culture out of which our stories arise that they would have worshiped inanna men would have been in a subservient position to her and to her representative on earth the priestess let's just pretend let's read sarai as a priestess of the goddess okay Avraham is the one who heard this invisible Yahweh God. Not Sarai. What would Sarai have grown up with? This is what Sarai would have known. What you're looking at is what Sarai would have known. Not Yahweh. This is written by Yahwists, of course. They're going to retroject onto Sarai her faith in the one God. I'm not questioning that. But the origin of these stories has Sarai completely Mesopotamian. That's all she would have known. There isn't Yahwism yet in the story. Of course, it's written when Yahwism is a thing already. Um, but in the story itself, there is no Israelite religion. They're from Ur. <laughs> that is smack in Mesopotamia, right? The only religion they would have known is what you're looking at. Oh, very cool. What so, happened? <laughs> <laughs> what, what? I know. A little. I have a little longing all the time. A little longing. A little longing, right? Um, I would have been a great priestess, I think. <laughs> I probably would have gotten kicked out, but I would have made a great priestess. Um, so, yeah. What is next to Okay, so th there's the priestess behind her are the 
Asherah, right, are the um, posts with a circle-y thing on top. Those are the posts representing the goddess. Okay. So whenever we see in Torah, you will tear down their Asherot. That's what it's talking about. The symbol of the goddess. You shall tear them down. Because many Israelite altars had right next to them an Asherah. So Israelites were very loath to give up the representation of the goddess. And often there was syncretistic religion. In Kuntilat Adrud in the south, uh, by Egypt, we have an inscription on a wall that is very old. And it says, to Yahweh and his Asherah. Wow. Wow. Where was this? Kuntilat Adrud. Look it up. It's a great, you can see the image. To Yudhei Bavhei and his Asherah. So there was definitely syncretistic religion, certainly in early Yahwism. There was a worship of Yudhei Bavhei, and you can't have the male god without, without no, the female. You can't, right? So they were just really loath to give that up. We know they didn't really ever, because in every single level of occupation of the land of Israel, every single strata, we find figurines of the goddess. Every single level of Israelite occupation. It tells us they never gave her up. That's why the prophets yell and scream about it so much. Why would the prophets need to talk about it? Why would Torah need to talk about it if they'd already gotten rid of them? It's very threatening. 100%. So, um, the female rabbis now. Just saying. Just saying. So, was, was the priestess the top dog, so to speak, or was there yeah, there would have been priests who were just as powerful. Okay. So she's top dog in the pal in the temple of the goddess. So it was still a glass, right? <laughs> right. But you had the comp- yeah, you had priests who were very powerful representatives of the male god. Um, the other thing that you'll see at the top of the vase um, is a figure across from um, the priestess. Uh, which is, or the representative, or the representation of Inanna, we're not sure which, doesn't really matter probably, they were one and the same, right? The priestess was the goddess on earth, so it doesn't matter whether it's the priestess or the actual goddess. Across is an, a character in a net skirt that we, that, um, they identify as male royalty. Kind of supervising the, the bringing of the gifts, possibly to participate in the sexual union. You would have the king, Right? Sleep with, have intercourse with, sacred intercourse with the representative of the goddess. The child born of that union, right, is semi-divine. Right? This is very common in the region. Just think about Jesus, and there you go. Right? It's widely accepted in the region that children of certain unions were semi-divine. Why is it semi-divine and not divine? Because it's a human. So it's a hybrid. Yeah, but I mean, the, like pharaohs were considered gods. Was the Mesopotamian king not considered a god too? Um, you know, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But not all of them would have been gods. Not all of the issue of these unions would have been gods. Only the top... Pharaoh's the only one who was a god, not Pharaoh's siblings. Yeah, I got it. But you said the king, so I... I yeah, so I... I mean, the king himself may be divine. I don't know about his issue being divine. Until they become king, 
But she's considered divine. She's a representative. The priestess represents the goddess. It's not that the priestess is divine. So she's not. So how does the child... She's a conduit for the goddess. He's having intercourse with the goddess through the priestess. She's not divine. She she is access to the divine, right, through her agent, through her service to the goddess. Yes, exactly. The god has intercourse with, or not intercourse, but impregnates the woman. It's just a priest. Right. Yeah. But but right. So the priest is a priest, but can do transfigura- uh, transfiguration, right? Where you take the host and it becomes the body of Christ. So the priest is human, but the priest is the only one who has the power, because of the divinity, to change that wafer into the body of Christ. So. <laughs> I do say so. Um, right, so the wine and the wafer are nothing. They're wine and wafer until the priest turns it into the body and blood of Christ. So is the priest human? Yes. But does the priest have some superpowers? Yes. So the, the line isn't as clear as we, we draw the line pretty clearly. It wasn't so in the ancient world. It was a lot more muddy. Right? A lot more, there's a lot more variations of divine and human. Okay? Alright, so now you have your context. The priestess would have needed an heir. The priestess needs an heir. Very common in the ancient world were adoption documents of people adopting adult children to become their heir so that they will do the funeral rites that have to be done uh, to the ancestor who's about to die. Like, let's, let's say I'm the priestess, I'm the matriarch, and I'm about to die, I don't have natural issue, then I would adopt someone, a daughter, most likely, to become my heir, to inherit all of my stuff, because women priestesses had estates, often administered by their husbands. But it belonged to the priestess for her to designate to her heir, separate from what the husband owns. She would have had a stake. Often they were they were given a lot when they became priestess, priestesses. And there's different varieties of priestesses. There was a bunch of them. There wasn't just like one. You had the top, you know, level. But there were also lots of levels underneath that. So if you adopt someone as your heir, it means they're going to inherit all your stuff and possibly your station as well. Your power? Your power. Your authority. Right? So you needed them to do the funerary rites for you and, um, in retu- and to take care of you in your old age. And in return, they're going to inherit your material wealth your your estate and possibly your station. It depended on lots of different things that is way above my pay grade to understand. I want us to think that way as we look at this story. Okay? To this point, Sarai had no issue. She needed an heir. So what did she do? She gave her handmaid Hagar to Avraham to bear her Sarai an heir. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the same story. Right. 
<laughs> right? So she, you're bearing on the knees, right? So Hagar bears on Sarai's knees. Sarai is the, now has an heir in Ishmael. Okay. That's where we are when we get to here. Sarai has Ishmael as heir. Okay, so last week, so Hagar was wandering. She saw the angel. Uh, Sarai was upset with Abraham that, you know, you upset the power here. So now, and did I miss it? Hagar she goes back. goes back. Oh, yeah, because the Malach says, says go, back, go, back go back and submit and to your mistress, and, and you'll get your people. just desserts. Yeah, no, okay. Sarai did not hear that. Right. We have to that. remember. She doesn't know. Why Sarai doesn't know unless Hagar, unless they're friends and they they repair the relationship, whatever. But but otherwise, Sarai doesn't know that. Every Hagar runs away. She realizes she's hungry. She's cold. She's vulnerable. She comes back. From Sarai's perspective, nothing's changed, other than Abraham has made it clear: do with Hagar as you please. Right? She's your shivcha. You do with her. As you please. Very often a priestess would have an heir through a shivcha. It doesn't matter if the heir is a man or female at this point. They would have preferred female. They would have preferred a daughter. But both Hagar and Sarah only have one pregnancy and it is a male. So, So, good question. We are told here in this parsha about the birth of whom? Yes, coming up. But we've been told in this part about the birth of Rebecca. Who? Rebecca is, if you don't have female issue, right, you start looking towards your uterine brother or sister at their issue looking for a girl to inherit your station and you know and, and other kinds of things. So it's very possible, says Savina Tuval, that Sarai has learned of about Rebecca, right? That Rebecca is of marriageable age and Ishmael is of marriageable age. Alright, right? Plot thickens. So hold all that, right? As we go here. Alright. Let the matchmaking begin. <laughs> 21. Somebody read. Adonai now remembered Sarah. Uh, Adonai did for Sarah as promised. So she became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the exact time God had told him. Abraham named his newborn son, whom Sarah had borne him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. All who will hear will laugh with me. And she added, who would have uh, dared say to Abraham, Sarah shall nurse children. Yet I have a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned. And on Isaac's weaning day, Abraham held a great feast. Okay. Va'adonai pakad et Sarah. So God pakaded Sarah. When God pakads, God is not remembering Sarah. That's a terrible translation. Pakad is to notice, to take note of. God is going to intervene. 
It's a good thing. When God pakads you, it's a good thing. Right? Um, there's other things that God does that's not good. Right? <laughs> right? Um, when it happens to you. But in this case, pakad is a good thing. And so God is pakading Sarah so that what is going to happen next is directly attributable to Yahweh, to the divine. Okay? So it's a, it's a miraculous divine intervention pregnancy and birth. Okay? It's a hero story. This is a hero story. You have to have, right, kind of a divinish thing going on for your hero narrative. Alright, so God pakads Sarah ka'asher amar, as God said. Vaya'as Adonai Sarah ka'asher diber. And God did for Sarah as God had spoken. Okay? Vatahar vateled Sarah. She became pregnant and she bore. Sarah. Avraham to Avraham ben. A son. Leziknav. In his old age. Right? All right. Um, as as God had spoken, Vayikra Abraham et Shem Beno Hanoladlo Asher Yaldalo Sarah Yitzchak, and Abraham calls the name of the child born to him by Sarah calls him Yitzchak. Vayamal Abraham et Yitzchak, and Abraham circumcised Yitzchak. These people did not circumcise. So, Mesopotamian folk did not circumcise. Egyptians did. So, Hagar and Ishmael, it would not have been out of context for Ishmael to be circumcised. For Sarai's son, to be circumcised by her husband, possibly, is him Abraham stepping out of line. Doing something to Yitzchak ritually that was not part of Sarai's tradition. Without consulting her. Right? He, it doesn't say, and he spoke with Sarah and they called the caterer. It says, he circumcised Yitzchak. Okay, so so I'm I'm just saying it's just fun. Let's just have fun. Let's read it that possibly this is a source of some right contention for Sarai, the priestess, to have her son subjected to this very serious body altering, permanently altering ritual. He was thirteen at this time. So his newborn son and it is unlikely they did not circumcise infants in the ancient world. Life was too precarious. Too often it went wrong. The K factor doesn't kick in till day eight. Hence, we circumcise day eight. The K factor is the clotting factor of the blood. Does not kick in for an infant until day eight. So before that, baby dies. Baby bleeds to death. Right? If, it, if there's a mistake or something goes wrong, baby bleeds out. So day eight is as early as you can do it. It is very unlikely that in the ancient world they did it at day eight. Likely it was a fertility ritual done at puberty. Think, and I hate to say it, but think female circumcision. Right? Think rites of passage for adolescent young men, scarring, 
journeys that they have to survive, right? You know, sometimes other kinds of, um, and I don't say this with any judgment, I'm speaking anthropologically, other kinds of mutilation that would have been permanent, right? And painful and scary and bloody. That's the point. You pass through that to get to adulthood. It has to be bloody, painful, scary, right? That, there's no point to it otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, we have sweet 16 parties. Like, it's not, you, you miss the power of, of that transition to adulthood, right? Sometimes I believe Bar and Bat Mitzvah is pretty close to some of that torture for these kids, I gotta tell you. Um, alright, so. I don't know. I don't know. Probably. Probably. If you want to back it up to infancy, yeah. Probably. Things went wrong till they figured it out, right? Um, I don't know when it moved back to infancy. No. You, you only learn that by, oh, if you do it at day eight, they seem to survive. Now we're discussing the circumcision issue, but Abraham circumcised himself much before that. Yes. Because his... He was still in Mesopotamia where it was unknown. Right. So his God, this new God, is calling for a new ritual in Mesopotamia, right? Because they're leaving Mesopotamian culture that way and religion that way, right? And the sign that you're not, the sign that you're, forget not, the sign that you're opting in to the covenant with this new God is circumcision. So it makes sense that it wasn't done by the neighboring cultures because it's a specific identifier. Yes. It's a specific identifier that you have bought into the Yaoist system. How is not, this not viewed as crazy? What? Self-maiming. Self-maiming? Yeah. I, I, maiming I, it's, the, it's the father who does it to the son. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. Whether or not it's crazy, that's a whole other conversation that at some point I would love to have. Because um, it is. On some level. It is. It's crazy. I didn't want to do it with my kids. It's crazy, right? So... Yes. But did I understand, you, you said, okay, you want to differentiate yourself, so here's a differentiation. But did I hear you say that the Egyptians did? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting that, <laughs> it's interesting that, that you want to differentiate from these guys, but not those guys that we... Well, remember along. remember that, they, that all of this is arising out of Mesopotamian religion and culture. That's who they would have been identifying themselves yeah. over and against, not so much... The Egypt that we never left. The, <laughs> Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> you know, e- Egypt was, yes, okay. there's lots that we could say about Egypt. It's down there. It's a corrupting influence. Yucky, yucky. But, um, but if you really want to identify yourself over and against the population that could be turning you away from Yahwism, it's Canaanites. It's Mesopotamian religion. Okay, one more thing and we're going to go on. So for people that are not Jewish, is it they don't wait and they don't have a grist? Is it done in the hospital when yes. the baby is born? So yes. So what about the blood clotting? We these doctor. They use, yes. <laughs> yes. Please. They use a special valve that uh, constricts and does its vitamin K, and a lot of people, oh. a lot of the kids do have vitamin uh, vitamin K reasonably, but they may some of them may not get it till till day eight. But you use a plastibel and it uh, basically puts pressure on, and for enough time that uh, you can it get it. Okay, there you go. So, technology is the answer. Yeah. So, so, it, so when we have the conversation, is it crazy? Yes. When we have the conversation, you're going to do it. I say, do it in the home, 
right? Because yeah. And to Carol's point, that's why most mothers stay out of the room while they do it. All right. So he he's circumcised, and when his son uh, now Abraham was a hundred years old, so we know this is a miraculous birth, right? Um, and Sarah says, right? She says, "Tzchok asali Elohim." God has done to me a tzchok, something funny, right? So they can talk all they want to about Abraham naming that child. There is no way you can tell me that this comment here has nothing to do with his name, right? <laughs> so maybe in the original tradition, Sarai names him because she says, "Tzchok asali Elohim." God has done to me a tzchok. The child's name is Yitzchak. Like, hello, <laughs> right? Ki hashomea yitzchakli. Because everyone who hears, literally yitzchak, he will laugh at me. Mm-hmm. Here's his name, yitzchak, right? So there, you can't tell me this doesn't have something to do with how he got his name. Vatomer, mi milel Avraham. Who would have said to Avraham that, that, uh, that there would be born... Right, that Sarai would nurse, right, and that uh, I would have born a son in my old age. All right, the child grew up and was weaned. Abraham held a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. How old would that have been? Three, three, four, possibly older. Seventeen, eighteen. <laughs> Sometimes I, that's how I feel. Um, so, some people want to argue that that uh, teeth. When the baby, te- when the baby come teeth in. come out, those are your nursing teeth. And permanent teeth, right? So there, that's one theory in the anthropological world, is it, it, it went on that long. Um, for sure, we know four years would have been normative as a form of birth control. You nurse the child, which helps, not always, I, I get it, I get it, I know, you can still ovulate, I get it. But in general, it reduces the possibility of another pregnancy and gives the child a higher chance of success, of survival, and socially bonds mother to child um, and spaces out the children so that you don't have another baby before that child can walk and get Cheerios for itself. Right? Go to nursery school. Right? When it, then you have another baby. So we see this spacing in lots of places, right, who, who live a little bit closer to, right, to traditional societies like this. Okay? So, so Isaac is not an infant at this point. He's three, four, something like that. May possibly older. So now let's go on. Now... Sarah saw the son of that Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham plain. She said to Abraham, throw the slave girl and her son out. The son of the slave girl is not going to share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. This grieved Abraham greatly on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be grieved over this boy or your slave. Do whatever Sarah tells you. For it is through Isaac that your that offspring shall be called yours. Yet I will also make a nation of the children of the slave son, for he too is your offspring. Okay. Okay. So Sarah, now we're whole other episode now. Like cut from the weaning, the party, 
the bagels. We're going now to another scene. What's going on in this scene? Vatere Sarah at Ben Hagar Hamitrit, Asher Yaldala Abraham, Mitzachik. Robert already knows where this is going. Sarah sees the son of Hagar the Egyptian that she bore to Abraham, Mitzachik. It is a participle. Do, he's doing it now. So in this, the South, we would say, he's a singing. Right? Put the A, put the A in front of the verb, right? He's a running. Right? So that's the only way I can explain it to you, what the Hebrew is saying. Right? It didn't say, he did it. He, it's right, it's right now. He's doing it. So she sees Ishmael mitzacheking. A playin. <laughs> All right. So you can't mistake Yitzchak in there. He's mitzacheking. Right? And when she sees that, Vatomer la Abraham, she says to Abraham, Garesh ha'ama hazot. Banish, exile, banish this slave. And her son. Because the son of the slave, this slave, will not inherit with my son, with Yitzchak. What has just happened? Ishmael is still the heir of Sarai till this moment. Because she says, he now is not going to inherit. Before then, he was going to. Sarai has, if we're reading it through the lens of Mesopotamia... Sarai has a choice to make. She now has two heirs. With the beginning of this chapter, we get the birth of an, of an heir for Sarai. She could have thought she was pregnant with a girl. If she was pregnant with a girl, it might have made everything a lot more obvious, a lot simpler. But she, she gives birth to a boy. She's unlikely to have another pregnancy. And wouldn't her firstborn be the, wouldn't Ishmael be inherited because he was firstborn? The youngest inherits. Really? That's new. Okay. So, in that system, the youngest inherits. Rebecca, right, when we talk about, like, right, right, okay. So, in Mesopotamia. Where Sarai would have come from, the youngest would have inherited. And that's because they, they take care of you. They right? take care of you in your old age. The they're, they're the ones who, yeah, the other ones have gone and they've gone to college and grad school and they've got good jobs. The youngest is the one who takes your place in the clan. Is that still true in Islam? I don't know. There you go. Isn't the Saudi prince who's in such hot water right now the youngest of the sons? Well, oh, that's, that's for a variety of reasons. Oh. Oh. Not because he's not because he's the youngest. Okay, so so Sarai has two heirs now, and they're both male. She has to choose. If we start seeing it that way, it becomes so much less about Hagar. Right. Right. Hagar now is called Ama. Not Shifcha. Exactly. Right? She, she, she's a slave woman. Like there, there's, there's a, 
Maybe when she went back, Abraham said, do with her what you want. She, she's not a shivcha anymore. I don't know. But something, right, that language tells us there's a shift there. Um, but clearly Sarai is saying, Ishmael is not going to be my heir. It is going to be Yitzchak. This is the moment that that gets decided. The only thing to do then, and we have documents that tell us this, if a slave woman gives birth to a son for the patriarch, for the husband, and then the wife has a natural son of the husband, you free the slave woman and her son. You free her. She now has status as a free person to decide her own future. She takes the son as hers. It no longer belongs to the patriarch because the patriarch got the heir that the patriarch needed through the the legal wife. The slave is freed and she takes the the offspring with her. What's the alternative? She stays in the family system as a slave. The son belongs to... It's very clear that Abraham... Recognizes Yishmael as his son. He's his son. He's and we get told he's anguished because of his son. There is no place here that suggests that Abraham is rejecting Yishmael in any way. Abraham doesn't have a choice. Sarai has made the decision about who her heir is going to be. That changes the status of Ishmael and Hagar. All right, so let's hold it that, let's read it that way, just just because it's fun. Let's read it that way. So she's saying, send her out. Free her. You, free her. You don't get to keep her. You have to send her out of this family system because it's not going to work anymore. I've decided that Yitzchak will be the only heir that I have. That means they have to leave. Or she gets to leave. We could read it that way. I mean, I know it gets scary and dangerous, but, um, right? She, free her, send them out. All right. What, what makes Sarai so, so clear about that? He's mitzacheking. Yishmael is mitzacheking. What? Fooling around. Fooling around? Mitzachik doesn't really imply threat. No, but his being there is a threat. But what's mitzacheking about? Could be sexual. Ah, could be sexual. We see, we see Rebecca. How do, how do they find out that Rebecca and, who's her husband? (laughs) Um, Yitzchak are mitzacheking. That's how he knows they're not brother and sister. Because they're mitzacheking on the roof. So it leads to dancing. So they're, they're mitzacheking. So there is a sexual connotation here that is very possible. It doesn't necessarily mean Yishmael is mitzacheking with Isaac. He could just be mitzacheking. He's getting to the age where he's well into puberty. He is becoming a sexually mature being and Sarah sees that. And knows it is time, if he's her heir, it is time for him to marry. <clears throat> to marry. She's going to find someone in her line for him to marry. 
It's some people want to suggest, Savina Tuval suggests, this is a deathbed scene for Sarai. She's approaching death because she's going to die a few pages from now. She suggests that Yochaye Sarah, next week's Parsha, the life of Sarah came to this much time, that has been moved from the end of this episode. That this is a deathbed scene. Sarai knows she's failing. Yishmael has become someone who's going to mitzachek. Right? He's become sexually mature. Hershey needs to make an arrangement for her heir, right, to marry. Okay? Because if he marries in the family, he becomes the patriarch, next patriarch. He, yes. He's in line for that and or for her, her station, her status, right? Something about what happens here convinces her it is not Ishmael who she wants as her heir. So there seems to be something about Metzachek that is not positive, right? Something about it. Either it hits her the wrong way, right, or he's horsing around. He's not taking seriously his role as the heir. Perhaps he's trying to be Yitzchak. He's Metzacheking. He's pretending. pretending to be Yitzchak. He's teasing Yitzchak. He's mocking Yitzchak. Something happens that has Sarah say, I've made my decision. Couldn't it only be the predisposition of a mother giving a natural birth when she never thought she could? Possibly. She Possibly that she decides... She's more attached and she doesn't want her surrogate anymore, possibly. But they would have lived together. She would have helped raise Ishmael. Because Ishmael belonged to Sarai as her heir, she was probably the social mother. She was probably his social mother. But never probably felt quite... She certainly Maybe not. Maybe not. But speak to people who have adopted children. You know, I, I didn't, but I was adopted. So had my parents had a natural child after me, would they have felt differently? I don't know. About me? I don't know. But So it's possible, I suppose. But she would have been, Sarai would have been Ishmael's social mother, and, they, and she raised him. I mean, he, they, they're all living in the same tent. Is, is there anything in there to suggest that uh, Sarai saw this, the son of Hagar, and as he's maturing, she, it, it reminded her of Abraham's um, kind of we have no idea, right? Something happens that that she decides in that moment it's going to be only Yitzchak who inherits from her. Wouldn't it be only Yitzchak anyway because he is the youngest? No, that's in the that's in the Mesopotamian system right here. But right, so Abraham would still yes. Abraham would be would. I can't talk. Whatever it is, Yisrael would have inherited from Abraham, right, 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 and shared it with Yitzchak, presumably. Well, whoever wrote this were all also had to be thinking that she didn't forget that he was sort of God given. Yitzchak. Yes. So that. So that possibly she understands that he's semi-divine. He's the miracle child. And so this is the one that should be her heir. And now that uh, Yishmael is mitzachek age, 
She needs to make a decision. She's pushed into a decision. And if you believe Savina Tuval, she's also pushed by the fact that she knows she needs to make these arrangements before she dies. Okay. The matter distressed Avraham greatly for it concerned a son of his. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed. Now, it doesn't say the matter dis- distressed Abraham greatly because it was a son of his. And so he went to Sarai and said, honey, can we talk? <laughs> it said it distressed him. It seems the decision's already been made. Right. That he has no, right. it seems he has no choice. He gets it that this is how it's going to be. He's distressed. God doesn't say, uh, right, right. So God comes to comfort Avraham. Do not be distressed over the boy or your slave. So God seems to acknowledge there's something that Avraham might be a little concerned about Hagar, right? So going away too. Don't be distressed over the boy or your slave. Whatever Sarah tells you, do as she says. What is the Hebrew? Shma Bikola. Listen to her voice. Right? We've seen this before. Right? For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be continued continued for you. Right? So, um, as for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him too, for he is your seed. But what did God tell Hagar uh, chapter three ago? It's your seed. So I feel like God's a little bit like planet. God's like, all right, Abraham's upset, right? So I'll, I need to go deal with him because I need him to stay on track. I need him to stay on target. I need him focused. So God goes after. Don't worry, your seed will be continued through Ishmael as well. Very, very. It worked, right? It, God's not stupid, God forbid, right? God is going to come for an Abraham with, with its your seed. Don't worry about it. But we saw, we read chapter 16. We know whose seed it is. Because God said so. Yes. <laughs> right? It's very interesting. If you read it this way, the way we're reading it, it changes the entire focus of the story, doesn't it? The, the change, but it changes that whole thing of now it's about Hagar and Sarah being two cranky women at each other's throats and Sarah uses her power. I'm not saying it's not there. I'm not saying that's not there. There's not an element of that. I'm not saying that. And particularly with a patriarchal author. But there's been editing and editing and editing to the original stories. We can still see them showing through. Right? I, this is definitely a patriarchal text. I'm not suggesting it's not. But I think it's very interesting to read it through the eyes of the Mesopotamian people who were the early Israelites. Right? Early Israelites came out of Canaanite culture. So they would have known these stories. And they would have understood what's happening for Sarai here. Of course, the priestess has to have an heir. Duh. We all know that. Right? Okay. So so early the next morning, Abraham took some bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He placed them over her shoulder together with the child and sent her away. And she wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water was gone from the skin, she left the child under one of the bushes and went and sat down at a distance, a bow shot away. For she thought, let me not look on as the child dies. 
and sitting thus afar, she what? She burst into tears. Vatisa et kolavatech, and she lifted up her voice and she wept. Burst into tears. Like what the heck? Boy translation for sure. She burst into tears. She howled. Yeah. She lifted up her voice and howled. Her son is dying. A bow shot. So take a bow and arrow, right? You shoot the arrow. That's how far she's sitting away from him because she cannot bear to watch him thirst to death. She can't bear it. But she doesn't sit there passively. She lifts up her voice and weeps. You don't lift up your voice when you cry. You lift up your voice when you howl out of anguish. Okay, now it's very interesting what happens. Who's who's laying there dying? Yishmael. Vagishma Elohim et kol hanar. Yishmael is lying there. Vayishma Elohim. God heard. Yishmael means God heard. Vayishma Elohim. Elohim El. Vayishma El. Vayishma El. <laughs> right? So, right, the early listener would have heard that. Vayishma Elohim. Is Yishmael at Kohana. God hears the voice of the lad, the youth. Okay, so who's howling? (laughs) What we got told is Hagar's howling. But God hears the Na'ar. Either a variant tradition or God is listening to the one, right, that her howling is pointing to, is about. Vayikra malach Elohim el Hagar and a malach of God calls to Hagar min hashamayim from the heavens vayomerla and says to her malach Hagar what's up Hagar what's with you malach al tiri don't be afraid ki shama Elohim et kol hanaar be'asher hu sham for God has heard the voice of the youth where he is. Could God hear the voice of the lad where he wasn't? What does this add? So God hears the lad, the Asher Husham, where he is in this mess. For him, it's a mess. Even if we read it the way we've been reading it, the one who's disinherited didn't do anything wrong. He's an innocent. It's collateral damage to a system that that has only one be able to take that position. So, yeah, they're free. Freedom leaves us vulnerable. Do you think the Israelites went, thank you, God, every morning that they were in the desert? We've read on. We know what the Israelites did in the desert when they were free. Right? They whined and complained and were terrified and rebelled because it's scary. When you've been raised in a certain context, forget even slavery. Yishmael was an heir. 
He wasn't a slave. He was an heir. He now has nothing. He's been protected. He's been fawned over. He's probably had servants bringing him breakfast every morning and bathing him at night. And now no, he's, he, he, he's completely vulnerable. Of, of, of course. Suddenly alone in the world. Torah, yes. Torah, I believe, always understands that. Freedom is not just a great, happy, wonderful thing. It is terrifying. So, so the, the Malach says, Malach Hagar, what's up with you? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy Be'asher Husham, where he is. Kumi, get up. Se'i et hana'ar, and lift up the boy. Vahachziki et yadech, and take him by the hand. Kilagoy gadol ashimenu, for a great nation will I make of him. Vayivkach Elohim et eneha. This is a beautiful Hebrew word that means to have the eyes opened. It's a, only for eyes. The Hebrew word is pakach. Poteach is how you say, poteach is how you say to open. If I open my hand, poteach, we say to God, poteach et yadecha, open your hand. Right? Poteach. Pokeach, pokeach is only for eyes. A beautiful Hebrew word. Right? I mean, not that it's such a beautiful word. I mean, like, it's great. I think it's beautiful that there's this word that is about opening that's only for our eyes. But it's an aha kind of thing. So, but here, Vayivkach Elohim et Eneha. God pakached her eyes. God opened her eyes. Vatereb Ermaim. And she saw a well of water. Vatelech Vitimale et Hachamet Maim. So she goes and she fills the skin with water. Vatashk etanaar, another really nice Hebrew word that we don't really have a great English word for. Um, slake is the closest I can get. She slakes his thirst. But this, you don't need thirst with it. This Hebrew verb is only used for um, alleviating thirst. I don't, we don't have that word in, in English, but it's close to slaking, is it, right? Is it, more, is it beyond the physical thing of thirst? Is it bigger than thirst? You know what I mean? Like so you can thirst, like thirst for meaning. There isn't thirst here. Oh. It's the so opposite of thirst, oh, right? So I, I don't know mm-hmm. in Hebrew if it, it works that way, but, but this word is about making thirst go away. We just don't, we don't, so, so if somebody's hungry, it would say, and she fed him, because that, that has so many implications, right? right? Um, this is the word, but for liquid. She gave him drink, <laughs> gave him drink fine. Um, so she, she's, she alleviates the thirst of the boy. We can imagine he's close to dehydration. Right. Right? So this is not just, oh, she gave him some water to drink. She saved his life. Right. Vayihi Elohim et Na'ar, right? So, and God was with the Na'ar. Vayigdal, and he grew. Vayeshev Bamidbar, and he dwelt in the Midbar. Vayihi Rovakashet, and he became a bowman. Vayeshev Bamidbar Paran, and he lived in the Midbar, the wilderness of Paran. 
And his mother took for him a wife from among the Egyptians. Hagar is freed. She now has the ability to make marriage arrangements on behalf of her son. Who does she pick? Someone from her culture. She picks for her son an Egyptian woman as wife. So she essentially inherits a daughter. She takes into her home an Egyptian woman for her son. Right? She has an Egyptian female companion. Right? Do they have funds from Abraham for dowry? That I don't know. If she left with, you know, any inheritance at all, I don't know. Um, It wouldn't have been dowry because he didn't marry her. Did he settle on her, you know, some kind of wealth? Possibly. Very possibly. Makes sense. It would make sense. It would, well, not only guilt. The the Torah tells us you have to, if you free a slave, you have to provide for them. You, you don't send them out with nothing. That, all you're doing then is sending them to die. Um, it, so, you know, so it, it, it's very possible that she was sent with enough material wealth to make her way, right, in the world. All right, yes. So I have a question. Yes. When a guy the first time was kicked out, and God said, go back, everything's going to be fine, and I'm going to make a nation. So now she's kicked out again. She's under the tree crying. Why isn't she wailing? You know, what's going on here? You, I did what you told me to do. And so maybe in that wail, there's all that going on. I was going to say, so right midrash of what we don't have here. Exactly. Very possibly there is a Hagar tradition. Sabina Tuval argues that Hagar's story is a combination of two stories in Torah. Yeah. Two separate traditions. Hagar Sarai's Shifcha is one set of stories. The other set of stories is the desert matriarch. It's a great. You should read it. You should read the. You should read the chapter, uh, and the other book, Hagar the Egyptian, because um, they read. If you if you pull them apart, they read through as whole stories. I know, Sarah, you have to go. I know. Please. Um, so, uh, and y- Yitzhak should be well. We'll be holding him in our care, Sarah. Um, we'll pray for him. So there's two, there's two traditions that if you read them through, make sense on their own, that have been stuck together. She argues that the, this is part of the desert matriarch narrative, that this is not Hagar. Right? That this is the desert matriarch. Which means, all of that tradition has been lost to us. And even if it is Hagar, much of the material has been lost to us. <coughs> so possibly there was a lot more conversation. It's interesting that Torah preserves two appearances of the Malach to Hagar. Right? Okay. So this is uh, from Ra- Rabbi Toba Spitzer, my classmate and colleague who I read to you from last time. This time I decided to give it to you. Um, all right, where are we? So go to chapter to page 13, the second paragraph. 
In chapter 16, Hagar's encounter with the God of seeing is associated with Be'er Lahai Roi, a well of life and sight, right? We saw that last week, right? right? Here in chapter 21, there is no water. And Hagar repudiates the power of seeing, to your point, right? To your point, she repudiates seeing. Last week, it was about God sees me, and I see God, and anyone seeing on after seeing me, after I saw him, whatever. And the and the well is called Be'er Lahai Roi, the... the the well, right, of the seeing, whatever. And she went and sat herself opposite at the distance of a bow shot, for she said, I shall not look at the death of the child. So last week was all about seeing, being seen, appearing, blah, blah, blah. She says, screw your seeing. I don't want to see. But I don't want to see. Because you told me, yeah. <laughs> right? right? So fill it in. Here, here's Tobus saying, here we get by the author some sense of her saying, I don't want your seeing. Because you told me something else than this was going to happen. Um, I shall not see. If seeing is associated with life, then not seeing is associated with death. Everything has come undone, and Hagar seems to have reached the end, losing the son whom she was promised, losing the power of sight and life. Yet even here, Hagar has not completely lost her agency or her power to act, right? She decides where she's going to sit, and she raises up her voice and cried, right? Notice, notice Tobah's translation, right? Right. It's not, she burst into tears. <laughs> All right. The phrase, she sat opposite, Bateshev Mineged, appears twice, bracketing her statement, I shall not look upon the death of the child. The repetition serves to set off Hagar's words, the only ones she speaks in this chapter, and to highlight the action itself. The word Mineged, over and against, subtly hints at Hagar's opposition to the turn of events. She's neged all of this. Right? She's neged. She's against all of this. After the second mention of her sitting down opposite, me neged, she raises up her voice and cries. Is Hagar praying? Pleading for divine intercession? We're not told. What is significant is that Hagar has not given in passively or silently. Hagar remains an actor in these verses, albeit a tragic one, pointedly setting her son under a bush, sitting down in opposition. She takes away the only thing left to her, her own sight. As if to say, if God no longer sees me, then I too will no longer see. This is Hagar's final act of defiance. She's protesting. She's protesting. It is at this point that God does respond, fulfilling the prediction from chapter 16 that God will hear. We are reminded of the intertwined nature of Hagar's fate and that of her son. Right, his name Ishmael is given a sign of God hearing Hagar's affliction. Here we're told that God hears the boy's voice, where it has just been mentioned that it is Hagar who is crying out. Whether or not the text preserves some kind of error or confusion between different traditions of the story, the effect is one of allusion between Hagar and Ishmael. Each one reflects the other, as we saw previously in the announcement of Ishmael's destiny. If Ishmael's life is to be an amplified version of Hagar's experience, then there his voice too is amplified. It is his cry that reaches heaven. Yet it is his mother's agency, the power of her voice lifting up, that initiates the divine response. The Malach's call from the heavens, an almost conversational, what's the matter, Hagar, what's up? 
belies the anguished mother's desperation, right? This sounds kind of weird, like it's a malach hagar, literally. What's with you? Uh, What's with me? Have you not, like, checked out what's going on at Boshan away? Judging from the messenger's response, it seems that Hagar has been overreacting or at least misperceiving the situation, right? What's up, Hagar? Suggests she's freaking out for no reason. And in an alliterative wordplay on the theme of sight, the messenger tells her, Al-Tir-E, do not fear. The similar-sounding roots of fear and see, right? Making his negation of fear a negation of her negation of sight. Go, Toba. And perhaps it has been only her fear that has kept Hagar from seeing. For the next thing that happens is God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Sight has returned and with it life-giving water. Possibly the Malach is saying, why are you flipping out? What is wrong with you? Do you not see that well of water right there? Why? Malachagar, why are you screaming? Go to the well. Oh, oh, she didn't see the well. It doesn't say the well, God miraculously dug a hole and water came bubbling up. The water angel came and touched a spot and boom, there was a well. She opened her eyes and saw the well because it is usually there. But when we're busy freaking out, we can't see it. When we panic because we are convinced there is no way for this to end other than disaster, guess what? We don't see very clearly. And what we certainly don't see are possible solutions. <laughs> That's the first thing we miss, right? But it is her howling that brings the response of God, which is to send a malach. So it seems, right, one of the spiritual lessons I take from this parsha is, yes, we freak out, and we don't see any solutions. And we agonize that there is no way for this to end other than utter disaster and death of what's precious to us, our future that we imagined, the future of our young one, whatever it is, our whatever we love the most, it's going to end in disaster for that, for that person, for that thing, for that vision, for that hope, for whatever. So we don't see solutions. But if we just stay there, if we don't do anything, we're not going to have any solutions. I think one of the messages here is, so you have to howl. When did God take note of the slaves in Egypt? When they cried out. Only when they, it took 400 years. Only when they cried out did God intervene. We have to be willing and able to access our own pain, to recognize it and to let it out. That is the only way the universe can respond. If we hold it all in, and I'm perfectly right that this is going to be a disaster, right? 
then there's no possibilities for me. The well was always there. There's no possibility for me to see things differently until I externalize my fear and panic and pain and tell my therapist or my rabbi or my best friend that I'm terrified that what I love most is going to be destroyed. That's the only way we can get the message back there's a well over there. There's a ballot box to your left. Thank you, Mehmet. Right? The polls are right over there. Right? So if, if you don't register, if you don't lift up your voice, there can't be a different outcome. Then disaster is assured if we don't howl out of our pain and fear and frustration. Hagar is willing to do that. Hagar hears the message of the Malach. It is Hagar who then is able to save her son's life and move both his and her futures forward. And we know that, that he does well. And they have a beautiful, we can imagine, like family life with her as the matriarch mm-hmm. and a daughter-in-law from her culture and a son who becomes truly in the region, historically, a great nation. That is the only path to that outcome is us being willing to lift up our voices and open ourselves to the malach, to the message that can come through any messenger that this universe picks for us. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.